Welcome to the fifth episode of Easter Mall 2017 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors, where the fun never stops. My name is Michael Armstone, and joining me as always is a Canadian who is always on the lookout for something purple with a whip and gloves on it, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I think slightly behind the scenes, we have taken a little bit of time since recording uh, episode four, so we're nice and refreshed, at least, I would say. Yeah, nothing refreshes you like talking about your Owens boot episode. Who? Who? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we finally got to this because, as I alluded to last week, Logan has been putting your own last in his suspicions every single week because he knew your own wasn't the mole. It's the one spoiler we've actually been talking about on the Oregon podcast. We've finally got to the episode where your own goes home and Logan has no advantage anymore. What's funny is that Euroan, who everyone jokes about as being super unmemorable from his original season, really goes out in a very unmemorable fashion. <laughs> it's one of the most inspired episodes they've ever done for Vidim by making people do an entire episode on the Oregon Trail. That's a huge deviation from the norm. Usually when they do that, it means there's a terrible twist involved if you look at recent seasons. Usually means there's, there's going to be a double boot or or a double boot and a double exemption right at the end of the game. But here it's a very inspired episode, but it's also not a very exciting episode. And then it ends with Euro and going home. It's like, man, what did they see in this guy or from this episode to think, this is who we need to pick from Oregon. This is who needs to come back out of all of the contestants who have ever played Vidim. And this is the one person out of about 200 people who have played Vidim. And he's the one, the one person who makes the cut to be picked as the mole again. So I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I thought there'd be a, something a bit more to your own that maybe people overlooked and we'd figure out during this Oregon rewatch, but... No. <laughs> Two points on a similar theme. This episode is the one that made me pick Oregon for you to watch as your first one where we're doing it on the podcast. You've never seen it before. I have. Because this is the most heavily themed episode I think they have done in 10 years easily. They've never gone for a theme like this. But on the flip side... Now you understand why in the first episode of Renaissance, I was like, I genuinely had to ask Bindles whether this guy was on Oregon or not, because I was not confident. I had zero recollection of Euroan from this season. I still have zero recollection of why the hell they would cast him again, and even more, why the hell they would make him the mole of all people. When you have characters in that season who are so beloved by the fans, and I know I've done a very similar rant on this topic, but you have people in that season who are so beloved by the fans. I'm talking about people like Patrick, like Ellie. Imagine Ellie being the mole. Ellie Loost as mole would be so interesting and so compelling a story to tell. Nikki, I don't know whether she would do it, but Nikki would be super interesting as mole. And they throw that all aside and go, let's just go for your Rowan. He'll do it brilliantly even though he's in half of this season and he's a complete non-entity in half of this season. It's funny because everyone who was executed prior to Euroan this season was more memorable than Euroan. And that's not just like a ha-ha, let's drag out this joke. I'm thinking, no, 
like your Rowan is really in the <laughs> is really in the background out of any of the first five boots of the season. As much as obviously I do love to joke about your Rowan being a complete non-entity, the best jokes are rooted in truth. Your Rowan is such a non-entity in this season and in his own boot episode. And we've said this in previous episodes during this rewatch. Whenever he's on screen, the default emotion you get from him isn't entertaining or compelling character, it's smug. You just get a radiating smugness, and like he's always putting a front up. And maybe that's what compelled them to make him the mole. Um, I mean, to to your own credit, when he does get brought back as the mole, no one thinks it's him, <laughs> except for Nikki. But it always feels like he's playing a character in these five episodes. And that's something I've noticed on the rewatch. It does always feel like he's never giving his true self over to the show. Maybe that's what production picked up on and why they wanted to use him as the mole. Yeah, it's puzzling because that shouldn't be your first criteria for who to pick as the mole in an all-star season. It should be figure out who most entertaining people were from each season, maybe pick the top three. And then from all of those people, you pick out who you want to be the mole. Like your own doesn't... I mean, I hate to extend it out even further, but your own doesn't even make the top nine most interesting characters of Oregon. No, I was going to say that. Obviously, you know he's not the mole. And the fact of the matter is, assuming you stick to the Renaissance rule of not bringing back any prior moles, there are eight better choices in this season than your own of the nine people who aren't the mole. And it's exactly the same, I would say, in Renaissance. There are nine better choices in that cast than your own. Because as much as I dislike someone like Tico in his original season, Tico would have made a better mole than your own would have. Because at least he's interesting as a character. He might be an arsehole in his original season, but at least he's interesting. Whereas your own isn't. Your own is boring at best and smug at worst. Yeah. So now that's the first roast of your own in this episode done. And we do have some parish notices from episode four, which was that about a day after we recorded episode four, Bindles did send me a message saying, given we were talking about how many F grades he'd uh, given out in relation to this episode, he's given out 22 F grades in the most recent version of his challenge guide, at least as of recording. I don't know whether he's going to release the next version before this comes out. 16 of which are from the last three Australian seasons. And the non-Australian ones are Vidim 13's Cockpit Flyer Challenge, which is, you know, a rubbish one, to be fair. The Vidim 16 Monastery Challenge that ruined the season. The Hay Bale and Rifle Challenges from this episode and the last episode. America 4's Eat All the Leftovers Challenge. And America 5's Underpants Run. Those are the six non-last three Australian season F grades in Bindle's Challenge Guide. And something else that I did forget until I was actually editing episode 4. Sigrid didn't attend the reunion. And they give absolutely no explanation in in the reunion as to why Sigrid didn't attend. And my presumption after last week's episode was she must have still been properly heartbroken and not wanted to face these people. Oh, yeah, because she was a super fan, right? Yeah, she was absolutely devastated when she went home and then she doesn't attend the reunion. She's one of the very, very, very few people who doesn't attend a Vidim reunion, even when they're on the season. To put it in perspective, Jean-Marc who quit in the middle of the second episode of Vidim Georgia, he even made it to his reunion. Yeah, the next person who doesn't attend a reunion is Johan, and that's because he got COVID. I was about to say, I'm like, yeah, all I can think of is Johan's the only absence since 
since then. But no one's ever no one's ever voluntarily skipped out other than Sigrid since then, right? Uh, not since then, no. I guess, I mean, the only explanation that makes sense is that she was still just completely, yeah, just emotionally distraught that she went home so early from Vidim. She was the first person in eight years not to attend the reunion. Meanwhile, on Survivor, that happens almost every season now. <laughs> and in fact, she was only the second person ever not to attend the reunion, voluntarily. So, yeah, she must have still been very, very upset at whoever she was upset at. I'm assuming Joachim. That's a bit awkward for the cast to try and work through, I guess. Yeah, but I did check after I realised that, and um, they don't explain it in the reunion. It's just, sadly, Sigrid couldn't be with us today. But I forgot that when we recorded episode four. I remembered it and then went back to the uh, to the list to see whether I was right in my instinct that she didn't attend. And yeah, I was right. She didn't attend. So previously, the final six began their trip through the Wild West and not to Idaho, as Diedrich suspected. They faced cowboys to try and not get lassoed, but their bet that Thomas would make it was incorrect, losing them money. At a cattle auction, they raided the pot for three yokers, much to Euron's disgust, before Sigrid and Joachim both tried to get a bond with Emanuela, which sent Sigrid home. And Sanna opens the episode by saying she doesn't understand why she's still in the game, she voted for Sigrid all four times, and survived at the test. And then we get what is now a traditional scene of Emanuela eulogising whoever went home last episode, as her latest Bond partner to go. Joachim says that it was a horror scenario, their bond was good, until he doubted her, he made a bond with Emanuela which was stupid, and Emanuela ran to Sigrid, and the bonds came between them. He's afraid that Emanuela convinced Sigrid that he is the mole. Art says it's halfway through the game, but essentially a restart for the season, the pot went up in smoke, and a second suspicious person in a row went home. Is the mole invisible, or is this group just blind? Maybe a historic journey will enlighten them, Back to basics on the Oregon Trail. And the episode title is Reigns in Hand, which I believe may be one of the titles of a film in your collection. <laughs> and it is day nine on Battle Mountain, and Art meets them by some horses and carts. Rowan says that they all assumed that if they were doing Wild West as a theme, they would do something with horses and carts. No one can handle horses, but Sigrid could have, as we learnt last week. And she was very excited by the presence of horses. Art tells them that they've got till 1.30 the following afternoon to complete a 16km stretch of the 3,200km Oregon Trail. Along the way, they can earn money for the pots, which they will need, and he says he will see them in the Promised Land. And I've done a bit of research, and the irony is the Oregon Trail actually ended up in Oregon City, where they were in Episode 2. They could have absolutely avoided roughing it and camping for a night here. They could have literally just gone to Oregon City, because that's where it ended. Interesting. And the first pairs in the carts are Emanuela and Sanna, Euron and Thomas, and Joachim and Diedrich. Euron says it's part of his plan with Sanna. She'll keep an eye on the women, or woman at this point, and him the men. And he says he doesn't suspect Thomas, so they can just spend some quality time together. And he says he's surprised that they have to drive their own carts. And it is very noticeable in this episode, even if you didn't know Euron was going home, he narrates a lot of this episode. And he's a bad narrator in a lot of this episode. Yeah, you get the yeah, he gets a slight uptick in airtime, and it's like, hmm, I think this is Euro and farewell. I think it is as well. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine that had twenty twenty one Michael been watching this episode without knowing that Euro and goes, there would have been fireworks going off when I watched this episode. It's the same. You just don't have to draw anything on the sand. I would have been starting a campaign to get Ding Dong the Witch is Dead in the uh, in the UK charts again. <laughs> as soon as he's out of this game. 
So just as Diedrich says that he needs a physio, they see their first challenge. Each of them received a 22mm gun and has to shoot six targets at a distance. Each of them has 20 bullets, and each hit on the bullseye of a target is worth 100 euros. Did you enjoy this challenge? (laughs) It's not the easiest one to follow when watching, because all they say is, well, we can't tell who hit the target and who didn't. And then I'm thinking, well, does the audience get to know? (laughs) No? Okay. I don't even think they mentioned this in the reunion, who actually scored on this challenge. Yeah, it's just like, oh, Art comes out and says, how many targets did they hit? Six. Six, yeah. So Art comes out and says, oh, you hit six targets. Here you go. Here's 600 euros. Everyone celebrates. It's like, well... Can we find out who hit the targets? (laughs) I don't understand why that has to be kept a secret, not just from the players, but from the audience. For a challenge that potentially has the largest pot amount ever put into a pot on Vidim, this is just a mess. Like, if you're doing the follow the money theory, there's absolutely no way you can do it with this season because of this challenge. Yeah, because it's a complete mystery. Was it did the same person hit all six targets? Did all six of them hit one target? Who hit what? <laughs> so it's not really so it's a it's an interesting concept for a challenge and inspired while doing the Oregon Trail to set up something like this and really go in with the whole old school pioneering theme. But you gotta tell us the results of the challenge. You can't just say, Oh, yeah, so you guys did this activity and you guys hit six targets. We want you nobody will get to know the details ever ever. Here you go. It's a rare combination of a challenge that is both opaque to actually watch as a viewer and completely impossible to follow as a viewer. And it doesn't look particularly fun. I know Sano does say that she's fairly left-wing and a pacifist, but really enjoyed the shooting. Yeah, but enjoyed the hell out of those guns, was her exact quote. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that this was what they'd hoped they would be doing in Oregon. Yeah, then your one says, I thought we hit the target, but given my experience with the, this group on the auction, I wouldn't bet too much. But it's like, well, you hit six targets. Who who hit them? Who hit them? <laughs> I mean, if you're going to do something like a prosperity-themed challenge on the Oregon Trail, make them pan gold or something. At least that's reasonably visually interesting. Or easier to follow, if nothing else. I don't know. Well, the one thing I can think of for why they didn't share the results is maybe... One person hit two targets, four people hit one target, and the mole was the one to hit zero targets. And they said, well, if we reveal the results, everyone's going to know who the mole is. It's only a hundred euro difference, though. They could just be cack-handed. Yeah, unless they just want I don't know. That's the best theory I have for why we didn't get to know what happened. Why it's like, oh yeah, the they may as well have not aired the challenge at all. That's how much of an impact it had. I know in the past few episodes we've been going, this is a complete filler challenge, just yada yada it through. But this is a complete filler challenge. There is nothing for us to say about it. And then they have to settle for the... I think it's time to settle for the evening where Euron says, oh, this is a little broke back uh, mountain guys. Oh no, we've got a couple more fun bits first. Because after the shooting, everyone swaps over. So Thomas and Emanuela go together, then Diedrich and Euron, and Sanna and Joachim. And there is a loss of scenery porn. Sanna says nothing in sight, hints at them being in the 21st century anymore. To which I have to say, that's like being in Canada. And they stop along the way to pitch up camp. Joachim says the view is totally broke by mountain, and Sanna worries about bears. She wasn't worrying about bears until someone mentioned bears. 
I thought it was I thought it was your own. Then Thomas is to the radio and says it's a little broke back mountain, guys. And Thomas says it's totally broke back mountain. And I'm thinking it could have been Yakum. I don't know. It's maybe it's tough to distinguish between the two. The only other two male voices in the game. I was just falling asleep by this point in the episode. I'll be honest. <laughs> well, granted, there's Diedrich, but Diedrich's voice is very distinct. But yeah, I, I, I was just amused. I'm thinking this is already 2017. Brokeback Mountain wasn't exactly a topical reference anymore. Because I remember that in university where we had to read the Brokeback Mountain novella in my, uh, I think was in a film studies class, we had to read it. So this would have been fall of twenty or of 2009 or spring of 2010. So just imagine fast forwarding seven or eight years later and it's still being referenced. I like how it's also the only, like, when they're in the middle of nowhere in a country scenery for an Oregon Trail Challenge, that's the one movie reference they go to out of all the American Western-style movies. <laughs> Maybe, like, Canada is backwards. Maybe Brokeback Mountain had just come to uh, to the Netherlands by that point. What's funny is that I believe Brokeback Mountain filmed in Alberta. It didn't even film in Oregon or anywhere in the States. Yeah, because I think The Revenant filmed in Alberta as well. It's probably probably a similar area. Did I tell the Revenant story on this podcast? Don't think you did. So so the Revenant actually filmed within about a 20 minute drive of my house. So uh, my brother was working at a like a water testing facility at the time. And I guess uh, before Leonardo DiCaprio was willing to go into the shoe swap to film one of the scenes, he made his assistant take a water sample of the Shuswap River, take it to my brother's work, and then they had to test it to make sure the the water was safe enough for Leonardo DiCaprio to go into. He refused to go into the water to film the scene until it got it, until it was verified that the water was clean and safe enough for him to go into. And this is a man who pretended in the same film to sleep in a bear carcass. Exactly. That's what. That's the funniest part. Is that. Is that it's like, man, he's supposed to play this tough guy, but he's not willing to touch Canadian water. <laughs> not even so much as like have his fingers touch it or his feet touch. He's like, nope, I'm not doing this scene, guys. I'm not filming until it gets verified by my assistant. <laughs> Do you remember when The Revenant was about to come out, people spreading the rumor that he ended up having sex with a bear in the film? No, I don't remember that one. I don't know where this came from. It was probably 4chan, let's be honest. But someone started spreading the rumour that in The Revenant, Leonardo DiCaprio's character ended up having sex with the bear. And I don't know why people thought this would be the sort of rumour that you want to you want to spread about your latest Hollywood blockbuster to win him an Oscar eventually. Leonardo DiCaprio bears it all. And it's also not the sort of thing you can easily Google without getting put on a watch list. Leonardo DiCaprio bestiality scene, please. Now that's what's going to win him an Oscar. Yeah, it really goes against uh, the whole... Um, oh, what's extras. In extras, they talk about what gets you an Oscar. <laughs> play somebody who has a disability. Now it's, oh, now play someone who has sex with animals. We've really turned a corner here in uh, Hollywood Foreign Press. On the subject of Santa being worried about bears, did I tell you the story about when we were in uh, Jasper National Park? I think so, but it's been a while. You're going to have to me refresh on that one. So we were in Jasper right before we got the train to come over and meet Logan in uh, in Vancouver in 2014, and there were signs everywhere on the walking trails saying, keep an eye out for bear cubs, because sometimes they put them in the trees. 
And suddenly, my brother went from being deathly afraid of spiders to being deathly afraid of a bear cub dropping on his face like something out of Alien. (laughs) He was genuinely terrified that he was going to look up and this bear cub would just land on his face and then a mother bear would appear. (laughs) We used to have a substitute teacher in high school who, he was just known as the guy who would tell bear stories. Like he he wouldn't even really really teach us that much because he was just a substitute teacher. So he so we, he just became like we we only had him in like grade eight and nine about I think probably about four times we had him and then just every once in a while it's like oh you guys want to hear a bear story and it's like sure sure because no other no other teacher tell tells bear stories no one just randomly camped before they became a teacher so he would just tell bear stories and this and then. Uh, all these other teachers would just be shocked because we'd be mentioning this guy in like the 11th and 12th grade, like, oh, yeah, we're going to avoid having a substitute teacher. And they're like, well, if we get a substitute teacher, can we get the guy who just never stops talking about bears? And they're like, who the hell is the bear guy? So we had to explain to about four or five different teachers that there was a substitute teacher who was, who had come in to the 8th and ninth grade school classrooms and... At the start of class, at the end of class, and if things got boring in the middle of class, he would just be like, oh, you guys want to hear a bear story? And then he would just tell us like a five-minute bear story. I just genuinely love how we are now talking far more about bears as a topic than we are about this Vidim episode. About your own food episode? It is more interesting, because my notes are few and far between here. On average, I have about four pages of A4s as, as notes for these podcasts. I have two and a half for this episode. Uh, I guess we get a lot of Alliance chatter. Yeah, so Diedrich's obviously been watching Survivor because he says the most important thing is fire. Fire represents your life when your fire's gone, so are you. He says you can make food and keep the animals away, and it is therefore a priority. Thomas loves the outdoors because he was a scout for 13 years, and Sana is very disappointed that they actually have to make their own meal because she's obviously used to catering. Emanuela then pulls Joachim aside for a bond catch-up. He has a go at her for making a bond with Sigrid. And she told him right away that she'd speak to Sigrid. And she says she knows a lot of people suspect him, and she knows it isn't him. She went kamikaze on Diedrich last test. He was swearing for all 30 minutes of the auction, and there was no need for him to be so scared. Joachim says he's sticking to Emanuela. She writes things down, and he doesn't. And he wants to use her and then beat her at the end, like that would be a likely scenario. And in the evening, they get a mail delivery on a horse. Each of them receives an individual envelope. And I'm 99% sure that the work bag the cowboy uses in that is the same as my work bag that I use for work. Oh, you could be in the Pony Express? I genuinely could have been in the Pony Express. It's very similar to that bag if it isn't the exact same one, but it looks identical. Inside his bag are six envelopes, numbered one to six. Diedrich gets number one, Thomas number two, Sana number three, Joachim number four, Euro number five, and Emmanuel at number six. What's funny when Emmanuel talks about Diedrich saying she went kamikaze on Diedrich, she says, yeah, I watched him sweat for 30 minutes at the auction. I'm thinking, doesn't Diedrich normally sweat for 30 minutes at a time, no matter what's going on? Yeah, I was going to say, he looks very warm in that challenge anyway, because I don't think there was any aircon in that in that cattle shed. I think it was a very warm situation for him, made even worse by the fact that it was getting more and more stressful in that room. It's kind of understandable how how warm he looked and how sweaty he looked, I think. So Sana is told that on the right-hand side of the path the next day, she will find a yoker. If she can grab it without being caught, she will keep it. Emanuela gets the same one for the left-hand side. Your own gets the right-hand side one and Diedrich gets left. And all four of them burn their envelopes. 
Thomas and Joachim, however, get notes saying that they can earn two yokers by making them themselves. They have to identify each other and make them without the other seeing what they're doing to keep the yokers. They have to look for a bag attached to one of the carts, labelled tools, as it contains the tools that they will need. And I must admit, I was watching this scene going, that's really weird, because I never remember it being Thomas and Joachim, I'll be honest. I always remembered this as being Thomas and Diedrich, and this kind of being the the genesis of Thomas and Diedrich's friendship. Because we never really saw them as a pair before this episode, and they kind of become a pair from next episode onwards. And I'd always remembered this as being the genesis of it. Nope. It's Joachim. I like how they try to figure out who is the other person that has this. Eventually it's Joachim who figures out that Thomas has this card, because he realizes that Thomas is looking through all of the possessions. Which will not be the last time Thomas does this this season. Now, how do you think he would have dealt with getting this card? I guess just see, see if see if somebody else is digging through stuff like I am. I guess after about half an hour or so, you're going to figure out who the other person is. Do you think you would try and identify yourself to the other person, or do you think you would try and get two yokers on your own? Get two yokers on your own? You have to brand. You have to brand it on your own. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all he's useful for. You have to sort of carve yoker-sized bits of flesh out of him and then brand those. No wonder he didn't. He was not feeling well for the quiz. In two years' time, they were doing the open up the yokers to see if there's a price telling inside. In this season, they do the open up your competitors to brand yokers on them. But yeah, I feel like I feel like I would probably try to just do it on my own. If I thought I could get away with doing two of them on my own, I probably would. Yeah, I, I think as the first port of call, I would be trying not to pair up with anyone. I would identify the tool bag, and I would try and make sure that I did it and no one else did. Because two yokers is way more useful to you than one. One yoker you, you can take or leave, especially after last episode. Especially if it's going to cost three and a half thousand euros from the park. Two yokers become more useful if you played them right. So, after everyone goes to bed, Thomas wakes up Yuckum, they have to put the branding iron in the fire and then burn their own yoker symbols into the wood to be able to create them. They do it without being caught, and when Thomas returns to his bed, Diedrich was sitting straight up. He either saw everything, or nothing. <laughs> and they wake up on day 10. The confessionals don't have the traditional black background, which is a very rare thing for Vidum now. They, they love to pretend they're always in the same uh, place. Yeah, I noticed that too. I'm like, oh, the background slightly changed. I guess they didn't have the same green screen. Now they didn't do them with the green screen. They usually have one green screen room in every accommodation, I think, and just pretend that they're always in the same place. But uh, instead, we get Diedrich, Sanna, and Euroin in a slaughterhouse of some description, and Emanuela, Joachim, and Thomas in a cabin of some description. <laughs> and they switch pairs on the carts again. Emanuela and Joachim pair up. She gives him a list of everything that Diedrich's done all season so far. Thomas and Euroin and Sanna and Diedrich are the other pairs for day 10. Diedrich volunteers to walk alongside the carriage so he can see the yoker. Yeroen, of course, being Yeroen, completely misses his intention and his yoker. Yeah, he's taken in the beautiful views. I have to say, this twist of trying to spot the yoker on the side of the trail is a huge dud because no one finds them. I love it so much because of how much of a dump squib it is. I love how this episode is such a waste of space and such a waste of time. And it's so Yeroen, this episode. Every twist they do in this episode just falls flat and it's beautiful it's such a brilliant example of production trying something and i'm giving them loads of praise for trying this and actually trying to make it brilliantly themed but god does it fall flat on them and it's delicious 
What's funny is uh, we already had the carnival challenge where there was the claw game that we presume had, had a bunch of yokers hidden inside. And no one even touches that. And here we have another, okay, let's give him another shot at obtaining yokers to make this thing more interesting. And other than Yakum and Thomas each branding their own yoker, what's funny is that even that didn't reach its full potential because they both thought, oh, maybe Diedrich saw us that night branding the yokers. But then it's very clear that Diedrich never saw them <laughs> because it never gets mentioned again. So you're thinking, oh, maybe Diedrich's, Diedrich's going to say something. Nope, that goes nowhere too. And then you're thinking, okay, now we've got four other contestants who have to try and fight over yokers that they see on a trail, but no one ever spots any. <laughs> There's no presumption about the claw game. There's 22 yokers at least in that claw game that nobody spots. It's just brilliant. I think there's about 30 yokers in this entire season, and almost all of them are a huge fail. And it's just, it's wonderful. I love it when production goes wrong for them. I don't love it every season, but I love it just happening as a complete left field thing every single time in this season. What's interesting in, in that in Survivor and Amazing Race, they've always long established rules that if there's something that happens that has zero impact on the game, they won't. there's times where they won't even, where both shows won't even air challenges anymore if it's not interesting enough or doesn't have an impact compared to the other challenges and they'll edit out a lot of scenes. Some of them are completely relevant. Here with Vidim, because it has a one hour running 60 minutes of airtime for every episode, it has a much more realistic scope and you feel like things aren't intentionally edited out because we actually get to see these twists that end up going nowhere. We get to see the carnival game and the re repeated shots of the of the claw game with all of the yokers inside that no one bothers to notice or go for. We really can throw away time on that. And then here we get several minutes thrown away on this big scramble for these other four yokers that ends up going nowhere. A brilliant example of this is the driving around Portland with the instructions game. Production had set that up so that they can put money into the game, yes, but also they can put one of the major season clues in the game, which is the Miss Mole book, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago with Bindles. The fact of the matter is, these people mess up that challenge so much that they then have to find a convoluted way to still have Art show that book off. Yeah, like there was no reason for him to show those books. And you could also say that if this were one of the American reality shows, that challenge may get edited out completely. If it was a 40-minute episode, they'd probably be like, well, they didn't even get to the true part of the challenge, which was being in Powell's book, so why bother showing this challenge at all? Because really, they go nowhere. <laughs> this season is so interesting from a production standpoint, and you kind of realise it when you get to this episode and everything just goes wrong for production. But it's so interesting a season from a production standpoint, and part of the reason I wanted us to watch it is because of this. It's a case study on how everything that production set up goes wrong in some capacity. Every single twist that they try and stick into this season to, to keep it interesting and keep everyone on the toes completely falls flat on them. And it's brilliant to see a season go so wrong for production and them have to constantly scramble to fix it. It's wonderful. Obviously, you don't want it happening every single season because it'd get tedious and look like they're incompetent. But this one is so 
delightful that they'd been longing forever to do an America season. They knew exactly what challenges they were going to do. And then they get the left field things like nobody spotting the claw machine in the brilliant theme park laser game. Nobody doing anything close to competence in the driving around Portland game. Nobody spotting the Yokers here. And it just keeps happening. I don't think they anticipated that the auction would go for such a high amount of money. So then they have to scramble to try and actually give them a decent pot by the end of the season. It's that sort of stuff. If this were Czechia, they wouldn't even bother with trying to give them a decent pot. Oh no. But I think after the first episode, every single episode we have talked about so far has had at least one moment where something's gone wrong for production. And they're constantly scrambling to try and keep up and and make the season work coherently. And it does by the end. But God, is it funny to watch on a rewatch and just go, they didn't plan on that happening every single week. It's a Charlie Brown season, basically, for production. Yeah. But it's brilliant for us to talk about. And we still have one more challenge to go, and this this is perhaps the only good challenge, or the only challenge that's worthwhile for the whole episode. Yeah, I do actually quite like the Rodeo Post challenge. Yeah, this one's good. So they find the second challenge along the way, this time Art's waiting for them. He tells them they are near the end of their path and can earn money here too. Behind him are 130 posters detailing the history of Rodeo in the US. He's looking for one candidate with the gift of words, and after a game of Rochambeau, they decide to pick Diedrich instead of Sanna. Art apparently isn't familiar with Rochambeau. And he's given 10 posters, which will also appear in the field. The field ones do have text, his don't. He has to describe them to the others and get them to take envelopes from behind those posters. Each of the correct envelopes contains a piece of another poster where 2,000 euros is hidden. And they have 20 minutes to bring in the posters. Sanna finds the first one with cowboy main event on it. Thomas the second... His is a banner with purple stars and cowboy boots, a whip and gloves on it. Manuela goes third. Hers is mainly white with a red top and two small cowboy boots on the bottom. Jerome goes fourth. Appropriately, he gets a setting sun and an oil drill. Joachim's is mainly red and orange with a bull being ridden. He struggles and just takes a random one. And Jerome says he thought Deidre was clear, like a radio announcer, and he would know. So it's weird that Joachim couldn't work it out. Sana goes for the sixth one. She's looking for a bull's skull, a cowboy hat and a banner. Thomas's one is mainly brown with an angry bull and lots of stars. Emanuela does the eighth one. She's looking for a poster with a man lassoing on a horse. She doesn't think there was any mauling in this challenge. Euron gets a very artsy poster. His is lots of black with a red drawing, a prancing horse, and an American flag. And then Joachim is up last. He also doesn't think anyone mauled. And he's looking for a white and blue poster with a cowboy hat and a horseshoe. They open the envelopes to build the poster for Diedrich's find. Once they staple it on the board, Diedrich has two minutes to find it, using their instructions. Thomas has an empty envelope, so one of his was wrong. He finds it quickly and earns 2,000 euros to the pot, which nearly triples it. Your notes were pretty much identical to my notes for the challenge. There isn't too much to write about, but I did really like this challenge. Yeah, this is actually a challenge that works. The shooting challenge does not work as a concept, I would say. And you have the mystery of why didn't Thomas find that one envelope? Why was Joachim frustrated with Dietrich's instructions when everyone else thought they were really good? And then the extra suspense at the end of, oh, are they actually going to earn money in the pot when Dietrich opens up that final final envelope? And then he does. And I think it's pretty clear the mole had no intention of moling this challenge, knowing how low the plot pot was. Yeah, I think going back to what I said about five minutes ago, the mole was probably told to take a little bit of a backseat here. Just ease up on them a little. <laughs> I think you pretty much have to. 
Otherwise, it's just too depressing when they see the pot at 1,200. Imagine if they didn't get the 2,000 arrows and just be stuck at 1,280 at the end of episode 5. Not that anyone will ever admit it, but I suspect that production probably have a rough value in mind of what they want the winner to earn. And as a general rule, they tell them all to back off if if they're getting nowhere near it and it's not likely. I like how that, uh, not tradition, etiquette? Would etiquette be the right word for like what they, what production should do in regards to what number the pot should be? Yeah, etiquette's a word I would use. Yeah, almost like pot etiquette of like, okay, don't torment the contestants too much and have a really low pot. I mean, after Georgia, of course, that rule is kind of going to go out the window. <laughs> or at least the number they have in mind starts going, gets a lot lower. But here, I think between just letting people try to fire as many bullets at targets as they could, and then here where they have plenty of time to earn the 2,000 euros, I would say production was thinking, hmm, we got to make sure they earn some money before the end of the season. Or if you're going to sabotage, it's got to be, it can't, it can't be these all or nothing challenges. It's like, if there's a choice between them getting nothing or 2,000 euros, no, I'm, I'm, I'm also going to guess that they were hoping more targets would be hit during the gun challenge. I don't think they're expecting six set of 120 bullets to hit. Yeah, I don't particularly know whether anyone in this cast has experience with 22mm guns. Yeah, so maybe they thought just by luck, maybe they'd get like 20 targets and really ramp up the pot. But since only six out of 120 bullets hit, they're like, okay, gotta make sure that they get these 2,000 euros and have pretty much as much money as they did at the end of episode one. Yeah, they're on two and a half thousand at the end of episode one. Yeah, so so maybe after the first challenge of episode two, they're at about 3,000 euros. So we then get the traditional emotional scene of the team returning to the wagons and Emanuela saying she's thinking about the 400,000 people who did the five-month journey to make a better life for their family. Very sweet scene. Nothing for us to say about it. They meet up with Art, who tells them that they survived the 16 kilometers without getting dysentery. They hit the bullseye six times, earning them 600 euros of 12,000 for the pot from the shooting challenge, 2,600 of 14,000 for the episode, and 3,880 of 38,250 for the season so far. And they also made it just in time for test and execution. So it is now time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole who ever knows least goes home except for the mole who can never go home. And Thomas and Joachim have each made a yoker. Your own is going for Diedrich. He's always been suspiciously quiet. It's either a sign of modesty or him being the mole. He also suspects Sanna because it's stupid not to suspect her. And Joachim because he does weird things. Joachim says if it goes well, he'll go straight to the finale. He decides not to play his yoker and saves it for later. Thomas says he didn't see anything weird. He's just sticking to his usual suspects and plays his burned yoker. Sanna says it's strange not to suspect Emanuela, but for the first time all season, she suspects a man. Emanuela suspects Diedrich. If it wasn't for the Lion Game, she would have trusted him completely, but she can't forgive him for his deception. Diedrich says Joachim is unsuspectable. He makes so many mistakes, but you just forgive him. That is a great quality as a mole. Art says that three women have gone in a row. Diedrich can tell them the odds of them not making four in a row if they survive the execution. Diedrich is first, and him and Sanna and Emanuela all get green screens before future top five Dutch mole of the past four years, Jeroen goes home, and everyone in 2021 claps and cheers. And I mean, his his goodbye is really emotional. I cried at least five times saying goodbye to Jeroen. Oh, sorry, no, I, I didn't. I didn't take any notes of him saying goodbye to Art at all because he said nothing relevant in the slightest. 
He said, there were a lot of questions I didn't know the answer to. Every day was a new film and I had a main role and can't remember everything we did. And then only Sana's the only person who's upset. She says, everybody was allowed to go except Eurowin. I will now take that pot in the name of Eurowin. I know we said this a lot last season, as in Georgia, but there's so much of this episode's ending that is basically just other people eulogising Eurowin because he's such an irrelevant character to the season. Like, we see far more of Sani eulogising him and his effect on her as a person than we do of Eurowin saying goodbye. So next time a rodeo challenge sees someone get a special privilege, everyone explores a haunted house, and Joachim and Emanuela ride lawnmowers to varying degrees of success. Do you want to give us your post-episode 5 suspects? Uh, so at the bottom is Joachim, number 4 is Diedrich, number 3 is Emanuela, number 2 is Sana, number 1 is Thomas. Cool. And you've not seen episode 6 yet, have you? Yes, I have. I'm like halfway through episode 7. Alright, you've not sent me suspicion to episode 6 yet? Yep, they're the exact same. <laughs> we'll get to that when we record episode 6, but yeah, I didn't think you'd have seen it yet because um, you've not sent me. Yeah, I'm halfway through episode 7 already. And my suspects at the time were in reverse order, Emanuela, then Sana, then Thomas, then Joachim, and then Diedrich. And the Bothers Bar top three at the time were Diedrich, Emanuela, and Sana in that order. Have you got anything else you want to say about our dearly departed favourite future top five mole of the last four years? Your own. Just the one note that I had written down towards the end of the episode, which is, I can't believe within italics... This guy is picked as the only returning mole ever in history. Nobody else on the planet has had this role, except maybe in like a fan-made game of the mole. But he's the only one on the entire planet Earth who has been an official version of the mole, where he is a contestant one season, then comes back as the mole in another. None of the other 7 billion people on this planet can say they've done that. I don't think there is a better way to eulogize him than say, how the hell was he brought back in the first place? And how the hell was he the mole in a future season? I don't know. I thought I would see something and be like, ah, oh, there's going to be a way to contrast Michael and his argument, but no. <laughs> I got nothing. I'm like, what? I know I'm prone to hyperbole with this sort of stuff, but genuinely, I had no recollection of anything that Euron had done in this season from when we started doing Renaissance. And even after a rewatch, I still am none the wiser to why on earth he was brought back. He's just the human form of the shrug emoji. Elvis has left the building. Yep, Elvis has left the building. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. So, thank you for listening to our Vista Mole 2017 recap. We'll be back next week to continue the hunt for another old mole in Oregon. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at LogSuperQuacky, and I'm MJ Harmstone. Thank you as always to Marika for the subtitles. We'll see you next week. Peace out and just chill till the next of flavoring.